morning. Let's pray together. It's with thanksgiving, God, that we come to you, we acknowledge you, we just want to say we appreciate you, the opportunities you've given us to be here this morning. I pray, God, uh, as I know my own heart to be hard and deceitful and it loves to wander away from you. Father, I pray that your grace to not only my heart, but any other human heart that's sitting in this place that may be like mine, and I suspect there are many that might be like mine. Father, that your grace would call us back and teach us what it means to be the church. God, help us to be a church that's for Andover and the surrounding communities and not just in Andover. For your glory and for the joy of many people who do not yet know you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I got much love for you, Andover. I need you to know that. Much love for you. I'm excited to be with you. I'm Brian, by the way, if we don't know each other. I'm one of the pastors who gets the joy of week in and week out, whether it's here or in North Andover, uh, opening up the Bible, God's Word, that we believe God's Word, and teaching it and hoping that by God's grace I would be able to make it as clear as possible so that we would go and receive the Word and then be the people of God that He calls us to be in the everyday stuff of life. So it's a joy for me to do this with you again. Uh, this passage, Isaiah 58, 58, is a grand slam, according to God, and it's a grand slam for us if we can get this in us. This is a passage that's obviously about justice, and it has some pretty heavy things to say about justice, so we're just going to dive right into the deep end, and we're going to ask three questions of this text this morning as we work this thing. Number one, why does justice matter? Number two, uh, what does it mean to do justice? And number three, what will motivate us to be a people who do justice. So what, is it, what does it matter? What does it mean? And what will motivate us to be a people who do justice? You ready for this? Go I, I'm going no matter what, but thanks. I'll take it. Here we go. Number one, why does justice matter? Hey, by the way, I, hear, I was listening to this. I was watching the prayer room video again, and I just feel, I don't know if Carlos said, we, I just feel like we need some theme music to the prayer room, right? Like we're talking in the prayer room. No dishes in the sink, something like that. We need to work. We got to work on a theme song for the prayer room, so. There it goes. Here we go. Number one, why does justice matter? Look at verse two, if you can, on the back of your bulletin, on your device, or in the Bible. Verse two, uh, Isaiah is describing a people here who are diligent in their worship, diligent in their spiritual disciplines. We could basically say, we could probably summarize it and say, very, very diligent in observing God, doing the things that they should be, worshiping, fasting, praying, reading, um, all of these good moral things that they should be doing, they're observing them. And if you notice, this is not just a sporadic thing for them, but this is something they are doing continually, day after day. So it's not as though they're people that just drop into the temple once a month or once every six months, but they are people who are daily seeking after these things and doing these things. You point that with verse 1, and it's, it's a contrast, because verse 1, there's this calling out of sin, transgression, that word means sin. There's this call it out aloud, this, this, this putting it on display. I'm putting you on notice of some sort of transgression there. And so you have the combined of this, and you basically get this in verse, th verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, end of verse 2, verse 3, basically saying, um, they, the people of God, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right. Then you skip down into verse 3, 
and now you've got the people here, and they're wondering before God essentially this. Why have we fasted, God, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you're not taking any knowledge of us? You don't hear us. You're not acknowledging us. We're not hearing from you in any way. And so here's the beginning of the dilemma for the people of God from their perspective. It's this. God, we're worshiping. We're doing the disciplines thing. We're praying. We're fasting. We're good moral people. We're obeying rules. We're attending. We're, we're, we're day after day doing this stuff. And yet, what's up? What's the deal? You aren't hearing us. And you're not responding to us. Why? And God's response is bold and it's shocking. It's all the way. It's verses 3 through 7. You can look at it. Verses 3 through 7. But especially in verses 5 through 7, says this. Here's basically what it means to fast is God's response. Here's what it means to fast. Here's what it means to worship and to truly seek me. Is it not to loose the chains of injustice? To untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free and break every yoke? To share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter? To see the naked and clothe them? So these themes are themes that are woven all throughout Scripture, both the Old Testament and New Testament. And it's basically these themes of just that God identifies himself with the poor. God identifies himself with people who are on the low end of, of, of the economic ladder. God identifies himself with people who are just at the bottom, essentially. This is how God identifies himself in and throughout Scripture. Proverbs 14 says this, If you insult the poor, you're insulting the Lord. You skip a few chapters further in Proverbs 19, it says, if you give to the poor, you're actually giving to the Lord. Then you, could, uh, then you could do some jump ropes into the New Testament, and here we go, Matthew 25, Jesus is here, and he's teaching on Judgment Day, and he's saying, yo, listen, there's going to be two groups of people on each side of me. There's going to be the saved, the people who are with me, the people who are lost, who just refused my saving grace and my work on their behalf. The saved and the lost, two groups of people, and here's what Jesus is going to say to those who are lost, Matthew 25. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was a stranger, and you didn't give me shelter. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't look after me. Then these people are going to basically say, Yo, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you as a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick? and in prison and not help you? When do we see you like this? And the Lord's gonna reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Now here's what basically Jesus is saying in Isaiah 58 is getting at. If you don't love the poor, if you don't love the needy, if you don't love the hungry, the naked, the poor wanderer, the homeless, the marginalized, then no matter what you say, you don't love me. You and I aren't a thing. You and I aren't an item. We aren't jiving, right? You can, you can worship and you can do the spiritual disciplines and you can fast and pray and read and obey the day away. Go for it. But this thing called the relationship that you think you have with me is just a formal thing. It's just a concept. It's just a mere, forma mere formality. But there's no tr real true connection between you and I, because the way you treat the poor shows the relationship that you have with me. So we can ask the question then, uh, what does a real relationship with God look like then? And the answer we could say is this, it's a life that is aware 
and engaged in deeds of service, especially to the poor, the needy, and the marginalized among us, especially amongst the, to them. Uh, we got kids in here. All my kids in here. How many? How many Thomas the Train fans? One. There's an adult raising their hand. This is. This isn't gonna work, yo. Come on. Right, Thomas the Train. Let's just roll with this. Ready? So say Thomas the Train, right? Thomas and Tr Thomas the Train and Percy. They're homeboys, right? They're real tight. They hang out. They're they're like best friends, right? They giggle together. They play together. They roll all throughout the island of Soto together, right? Then let's just say Thomas just is telling Percy all day long, like, "You're my best friend. I'm only devoted to you. I love you. I'll only ever hang out with you." And then they go to sleep. But what does Thomas do when Percy's sleeping? He goes over and hangs out with the Diesels. Matter of fact, I think they made a movie about Percy going and hanging out with the Diesels, right? Day of the Diesels, Harry, Burt, Paxton, no? Man, it's a great movie, man, it's a great movie, right? And Percy wakes up and he says, whoa, wait a minute, Thomas, you've been telling me how devoted you are to me, how much you love me, how much, there's nobody else besides you, and yet you're hanging out with Diesel and Diesel 10. What's up with that? We don't have the relationship that you said we had. You aren't devoted to me. You don't love me. You aren't for me. God is saying, if you think you have a real connection with me, that you've humbled yourself and that you've found me, and yet you don't care about the poor, you don't care about the addicted, you don't care about the marginalized, you don't care about the needy, you don't care about the hungry and the thirsty among you, that you don't have that connection. Because justice, biblical justice, is an unavoidable reality in a relationship with God. It's going to be there in a relationship with God. We could say God plus real faith equals justice. And this thing may be slow to develop in some people's lives, but it's going to be there. And if it's not there, a care for the poor or the marginalized or the needy or the helpless or the wanderer among us, if it's not there, then we don't have the relationship that we think we have because biblical justice is at the heart of true religion. Even back in Isaiah 1, we could cast our fishing poles way back to Isaiah 1, and God basically starts out this whole thing saying, listen, I find no pleasures in your sacrifices. Stop bringing me meaningless offering because I'm weary of them. When you spread your hands out to prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. But seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow because if you don't have that, then you don't have me. It's heavy stuff. But biblical justice is that important to the heart of God. And so our second question is this, what does it mean to do justice. What does that look like? Now, we could, we could pick apart this text, Isaiah 58, and spend a, a, a bunch of time here, just hang out here for months. So rich and so big of a text. And to do justice means a number of things. We could say it's fighting for equal rights, making sure that those who are experiencing oppression uh, and not um, free to have equal rights like some other people have equal rights, so we fight, we fight for, for equal rights where there's inequality. We could say it's advocating for the oppressed, for those who are hurting, for those who are, are pushed down, for those who are cast aside. We could say it's advocating and using our voices and using our means and our, and, our, and our resources that we've been blessed with in order to advocate for the oppressed and the hurting and fighting for justice in that way. We could also call it as an implication, it's filling in the gaps provisionally, where we see needs and we take the resources that we have. We may not necessarily advocate loud and clear with our mouth, but through the way we give away and share and be generous, we could fill in the gaps provisionally where we see 
needs. Look at verse 7, though. It says this, the beginning of it. It says, share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and clothe the naked. Now, what is the poor wanderer? It's a word that means stranger. It's a word that essentially means this, uh, as commentators have said, it's a person essentially from another country. So it could be a person from another nationality. It could be a person of another race. We could say that it's actually, it could be a refugee. It's a person among us who's living in our life space, in our neighborhood, in our town, who we run interference with in some way, a refugee who is in need in some way. This is the poor wanderer among us. But if you notice the end of verse 7, it says you need to share your food with the hungry and you need to provide shelter for the poor wanderer and clothe the naked and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now, what's flesh and blood mean? You and I know flesh and blood, right? I start thinking about Danielle, my wife. I start thinking about Dylan, my son, Lucas, Olivia, my brother, Sean. I start going down the line of my intermediate family, right? And so do you. You start thinking flesh and blood. Like, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, like I take my clothes off of them and make sure that they are okay and provided for and give to them in whatever way. But look at what he says here. God applying flesh and blood to another person of a different race, of a different nationality, another culture, a refugee. God is saying this person is just as much your flesh and blood as your own intermediate family, those closest to you. That person who is in need, who is hungry, who is thirsty, who is without among you should be treated as though they are like your flesh and blood. That's heavy, but even more so, God is basically saying, I hold you responsible for them. I hold you responsible for them, those that are among you who are in need and oppressed in that way. But here it is, at the core of doing biblical justice, we could even dial it back to Genesis chapter 1, at the core of biblical justice is the truth and concept of shalom, which means, it means peace, it's a word that means peace, but it gets at more than just peace like, hey, this weekend, uh, my kids have been wild and crazy, six, four, and two, right? And nuts. No peace in the home, straight up war all the time, uh, brothers getting punched out, people screaming, kids jumping off vehicles and like almost cracking their heads, like craziness. And so for me, when I think of peace, I think of, man, what I would give to have 30 seconds of utter silence where nobody can say a word, but my kids are like mimes, right? They can just sit there and move their mouth all they want, but I don't hear anything. That would be peace to me, right? The, 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 the ceasing of hostilities and differences in my home. But this word shalom gets at more than that, just that idea of peace. Shalom means wellness, wholeness, absolute flourishing is what shalom means. It's how God designed our world and ourselves way back in Genesis 1 with shalom, where he creates all of these different people and all of these different entities of the world and all of these different things and created equal but different and all these things. And they're not created so that they would work independently of one another, but God creates so that they would actually work interdependently, harmoniously, so that all of culture and all of humanity would actually be well, experience shalom and flourish. Let's think about it this way. When your physical body is functioning properly, and I would, as I look out in the crowd, other than the little ones in here, I would gather to say that most of you aren't experiencing physical shalom these days. I'm not either. So physical shalom, everything's just working great, right? Like body's functioning, I feel great, I'm working out, I'm eating right, like just feel great physically. But what happens like when you break a bone or you stub your toe or you get ill? 
or cancer hits the scene, right? The body now becomes undone physically. You're not experiencing wellness, you're not experiencing shalom, you're not experiencing flourishing because now you've got something working against your body that's keeping it from functioning the way it was designed to function. So you don't experience physical shalom. Think about it on this way. Think about it this way. What about societal shalom? What would it look like for societal shalom to have? It happens when people who have advantages and money and resources and talents and gifts and all these things that have been given to them, they begin to use that to plunge it back into the community that they've been placed in. So they see needs where, where let's, let's make the parks beautiful. Let's help make our schools beautiful. Let's help make our town beautiful. Let's help businesses flourish in the area so that we would all experience some aspect of shalom. We would all benefit and reap from that in some way. But what happens when a person or a community who has advantages and more money and more toys and more trinkets and more advantages than other places do, what happens when people hold on to those things and they keep for themselves and become greedy and only are concerned for themselves? What happens? The community they live in actually becomes undone because the things that lack in the community, the places where there are needs, the people who are without, who don't have the advantages and money that maybe some of us have, now begin to continue to suffer and struggle in some ways. And the community starts to fracture and break apart and become undone more and more and more. So we could say this then, that, that shalom, according to God, is a picture of the way things ought to be. The way things were originally created to be. So the question that we could ask then is this, what does it mean for you and I, church, free Christian, right, people of God, together, collectively, what does it mean for us to be a gospel-flourishing people who are ferociously committed to doing justice in the name of Jesus? What would that look like? We could say this. What would it look like for us to be Micah 6-8 people, right? who love justice, who do justice, they love mercy, and they walk humbly before our God. We can essentially say this, that for us, the people of God, it means we, the church, the primary means through which God's grace and mercy are extended to and through, we become people who take our time, who take our emotions, who take our strengths, our gifts, our talents, our resources, our money, our advantages that we've been blessed with, and we are eager to plunge those right back into the community that God has placed us in. Where we see need, where we see hungry, where we see marginalized, where we see oppressed, where we see injustices, we are eager to take of ourselves and eagerly give away sacrificially and joyfully to put back into the community for the flourishing and the common good of our culture in which God has placed us in for a reason. Eugene Peterson said this, he says, listen, the poor are not a problem to be solved, there are people to be joined, right? And for the people of God to not loose the chains of injustice or care about the oppressed or share food with the hungry or welcome the stranger is not just, it's not just selfish, it's unjust. It's unjust according to God. That's how we do justice. And so the question is, right, have I pressed the guilt button a little bit? How are you doing with this? Because now even just sitting here this morning, right, like this is like the third time I've had to preach this in two weeks, and I'm still wrecked by this text as I look at my own life and go, tons of selfishness, tons of injustice in the way I function, in the way I hold on to and grasp things. 
But here's the thing, guilt, even if I try to like rail on you with guilt and become a people who do justice, like that's not gonna change us fundamentally, will it? Because what happens is this, is I can press the guilt factor, or JP can come up here and whirl around the guilt thing, right? And try to get us to be a church that does justice in some ways, more than we already are, right? We could do that, but guilt will never produce a long-lasting change in you or me to be the people that God intends for us to be. Guilt might motivate us to do it for about 30 seconds, but you know what winds up happening? From my own experience, I become comfortable with guilt being in my life, and then I kind of settle back down to what I used to do, which was nothing in some ways. Do you feel me on this? So guilt isn't going to solve the problem, and it's not going to motivate us to be a people who are ferociously committed to doing justice. So the third and final question is this. What will? What will motivate you and I to be a people who are committed ferociously to doing biblical justice in the places that God has placed us? It's not going to be guilt. And it certainly won't be a try-hard-at-being-religious approach. Or we could call it a fill-in-the-gaps approach. Here's what I mean. You can look at Matthew 25, you can look at Isaiah 1, you can look at Isaiah 58, and you can look at that text, and you and I can look at it, and we can miss the main point of what's trying to be communicated there. Because here, in these texts, you have God saying, worship, you're doing that fine. Spiritual disciplines, fasting, praying, right? We've got a couple of weeks, we, you've got a booklet on the way in about our prayer and fasting week, in which we're going to be able to give of ourselves to the things that are important to God's heart. We're going to be able to gather together as a community and do that together. So check that booklet out. If you've got more questions, ask at the front desk and be a part of that. Spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, God saying, like, you're, you're doing all that fine. Obeying, you're doing that fine. Social justice, oh, you're not doing that. And so we can read that and begin to think, well, you know what? If I just start giving more money away or if I just give of my time a little bit more or I plunge my resources to where there's disadvantage, then God will owe me the life that he owes me. Then I'll, I'll, I'll be deserving of the life that God owes me. Then I'll get the life that God, I'll, I'll have the upper hand on God, we could say. If I just start doing these things and I just fill in where there's a gap, then I'll have the upper hand and God will owe me. But this is the fundamental problem with why our world is so broken. You know this? This is the fundamental problem in the first place that we don't experience shalom in the world. It's because everybody is out for themselves and functioning from a self-centered heart. Everybody. And when the people of God function from a self-centered religious heart that says, if I just do this, then God will get me, that's more detestable than anything. Because you want to know why? We're just living selfishly and masking it with religion. We're living selfishly, but just masking it with religion. Not looking to serve or make or be a change, or bring our culture to be a place of flourishing, but we're still doing it for us. We're still doing it for, for me. And that's detestable. And that will never ever create a people who are willingly and joyfully and sacrificially committed to giving of themselves and the flourishing of humanity. So the question is, so what will, Brian? What will? It's beauty, it's joy. Something more beautiful to you, and something more joyful than what we've experienced in this life that this world could ever offer. We need something, a picture, a vision of something so much more beautiful to us that will compel us to be the people that God intends for us to be. If you look at verse 14 quickly, Isaiah is talking about the Sabbath. He talks about the Sabbath now becoming a delight, something that's done out of the joy of the Lord, instead of it just being something that's done to exploit workers. You had business owners who would 
observe the Sabbath, but they would make their workers work on the Sabbath. So they were gaining unjust profit. And they were exploiting their workers while they themselves were observing the Sabbath. And God is saying through Isaiah, now the Sabbath becomes a delight, a joy. Jonathan Edwards experienced something beautiful and joyful, something, he caught a vision of beauty and excellency. And he writes about it. He grew up in the church, young guy here, and had a, had a dad as a pastor, had a grandfather as a pastor, and yet struggled as a young man to really sense or experience the beauty and the excellency and the joy of the Lord in his life. And he writes this in his narratives. He says, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have much lived in since was reading the words in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where he says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Edward says, as I read these words, they came into my soul. A sense of the glory of the divine being, a sense quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. Never before had any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself, how beautiful and excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God, and be wrapped up to him in heaven, and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever and ever. I kept saying, as it were singing over these words of Scripture to myself, and I went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him. And I prayed in a manner quite different from that what I was used to, with a new sort of affection. Edwards goes on to say this, he says, From about that time, I began to have new apprehensions and ideas of Christ about His work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by Him. I had this inward sweet sense of these things at times come into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them and my mind was greatly engaged to spend time in reading and meditating on Christ on the beauty and the excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him the sense I had of these things Edward finally says would often kindle up a sweet burning in my heart an ardor of soul that I know not how to express. Have you experienced that? Have you had that? A sweet sense of burning in the soul that you know not how to express at times over the beauty and the excellency of the free grace of God in your life. Have you had that? See, back in Matthew 25, when Jesus says that how you treat those who are hungry, how you treat those who are thirsty, the stranger, those who are sick, those who are in need, those who are in prison, how you treat them is how you treat me. We asked this before, but what does that tell us about God? It tells us that God identifies with the poor. He identifies with the oppressed. He identifies with those who are on the low end of the ladder, right? But God identifies more than just in a sympathetic way. When Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came down, he far more identified with the poor than we can fathom. The gospel tells us that when Jesus Christ came to earth, he was born in a dumpy manger in a feeding trough. And when his parents went to circumcise him on the eighth day, that all they could offer as an offering was two pigeons, which was the, the lowest of lows in offerings at the temple. Which means this, that Jesus and his family were the poorest of poor. Jesus lived his life throughout his ministry essentially homeless. 
Jesus himself, when he was coming into Jerusalem, he rode in on a borrowed donkey. Jesus himself, when he had his final meal with his friends, which we're about to celebrate here in a moment, he did so in a borrowed room. Jesus, after he was crucified, was buried in a borrowed tomb. And Jesus himself, when he was actually being crucified, had nothing but the clothes on him, and they even took that from him. And so Jesus himself was exposed and was naked and was hung on the cross to be crucified. You see, innocent, blameless Jesus was the greatest victim of injustice this world has ever seen. But yet he did it to take our yoke of sin so that all of humanity who have messed up the shalom that God originally created the world to be in, who deserve condemnation, Jesus himself took on our condemnation so that you and I could have vindication, so that you and I could be pardoned and set free from the yoke and the burden of our sin and our self-centeredness. Jesus himself came down. He gave it all away so that you and I could be had, so that he could have us. Listen, if you and I operate on guilt, there's just going to be a fear the whole time. We're going to have fear as though like we're not living up enough. We're not measuring up to God's standards. We'll never quite get there when we're looking for a righteous verdict. But also, if we're just operating from religion, then we're going to focus on a pride approach as though we're nailing it all of the time, thinking that God owes me for how well I'm living my life, a.k.a. see the older son in Luke 15. But Jesus, when I see the beauty of what Jesus has done and the grace that he has offered to me in giving himself and plunging himself and all of his resources into our community to save the lost, to heal the broken, to care for the oppressed, to release people from burdens, to set people free, when we see the beauty and excellency of Jesus and can respond with joy, with worship, saying he's righteous, then... I can begin to worship and I can pray and I can read and I can do all the disciplines and I can do justice, not from a self-centered heart, but I can freely do it for the care of other people because I realize that Jesus came down for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. That's my new autobiography now, Galatians 2, that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. The beauty and the excellency and the grace of what Jesus has done has the power to change a heart. It can change my heart and it can change your heart and it can continue to change our hearts. Grace from Jesus leads us to be a people who do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And so here it is, the last two final things I'll say. Let's remember this as we come to the Lord's table now. And then when we're sent out of here in a few, minute, few minutes, to be on mission in the everyday stuff of life, let's go do this. Amen?